0: This morning, we're going to be hearing from two different sources of scripture. First of all, Psalm 118, verses 25 through 29. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine on us with bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. And from Matthew 21, verses 12 through 17. teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night.
1: Father, we pray that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to respond to your word today. Amen. Well, if we haven't met before, I'm Rob, and I'm so glad you're here today. And uh, I'm just, I love this day too. Palm Sunday is a fabulous start to a uh, rocky and crazy road that is the often called the Passion Week of Jesus, and this week, in our day and age, is a lot like I think, at least the feelings are of that week for them. So, uh, last Sunday night, going into Monday, there was this small festivity that was happening. Uh, at U.S. Bank Stadium over the weekend called the Final Four. Maybe you got to go down there. I know some of you got to go down there because I saw your pictures. Uh, it was pretty exciting because my wife's alma mater was in the championship game. They had only been there one other time, I think, and uh, they made history the year before as being the only number one seed basketball team to lose in the first round to a number 16 seed Uh, when UMBC beat uh, UVA in 2018. So they had this long road all year, but on Monday night, and actually throughout the year, they were focused, they were determined, they were unified, and uh, they won. And if you watch the game, do you have a word that would describe that game? I'd just like to hear it, because maybe you have a good one that I haven't thought of. Intense. Close. Nail-biter. Well, I would say redemption. I mean, to go from laughing stock of the tournament last year to champions is, I think redemption is just the word. In fact, one of their players said, you know, we just kept saying, if we use this adversity right... It would buy us a ticket to a place that I don't think we could have gotten to any other way. Without that loss to UMBC, maybe we don't even win the championship. And I think that made the story that much more beautiful because a wise person said, redemption is earned, not given. And, you know, if you're a UVA fan, then you were on this high at the beginning of the week. But then three and a half days later, uh, at just 10 miles south, another hallmark place in our state, the Mall of America, there's a mom who's bringing her five-year-old son and his friend through the mall, to the mall, and they're over by the Bloomingdale's corner. And the insidious and unthinkable happens, and some stranger either throws or picks this kid up. Three levels. No reason. Nothing. They haven't figured out anything. And the crowd hears this mother scream like, Everyone pray! Everyone pray! Oh my God, my baby! Someone threw him over the edge. As of yesterday afternoon, the police chief of Bloomington, Jeff Potts, said, that he couldn't reveal the details of uh, little Landon's condition. But he did say that he's alive and he's still receiving care and we just are asking for your thoughts and prayers for him to recover. It sure makes a basketball game seem pretty, pretty silly. To go from this place where things are amazing to the unthinkable happens. It's, it's really what the Easter week is all about. One story shows us that redemption is earned on our own, and the other story shows clearly that there's no way that we can earn redemption on our own. So what is redemption and and where do we go? And if we could just pause and pray for this family. Holy God, Father, you know us, you've created every one of us, and, and you love us. And so we just cry out for this child, Landon and his family, that you know, that you created, that you love God, we ask for miraculous healing in his life. We ask for an unmistakable peace. And we ask for an all-encompassing comfort, God. God, we pray that one day Landon could do the things that he loves to do. Play soccer with his friends and hockey with his brother and sister. God, we pray that Landon and his family would know you, that they would feel your presence. They would cry out for your, for your healing and your presence in their life and your protection around them. God, and we pray for this man that you know, that you love. And God, we don't know why evil happens, but, and we don't know why it has to continue, and we want you to redeem our world fully. And God, we ask that you would help us to live in your world as people who have been redeemed, who understand what it means to be redeemed. Teach us that today, God, and help us to place our sadness, our anger, and our questions into your hands, trusting that you, God, can write a better story. Well, like I said, these stories show us that we need redemption. And redemption is just one of the Bible's words for what it means to be at home or restored with God. Sometimes the Bible calls it receiving a new heart, the heart is the control center for all, at least in the ancient world, the heart is the control center for all our emotions, all our intellect, all our choice, all our will. It's, it's sort of the CPU that controls all of us. And the Bible says that we can get a new heart. We need a new heart. It's, and God, I think, wants to show us, even in this story, how we can have a new heart and that Jesus is the one who can do that. And I think he offers some actions even in this Palm Sunday event that show that. So if we look at the story, we're in Matthew 21. If you want to open your Bible or, or open your phone that has a Bible, you can do that. And in Matthew's story... Matthew's writing originally to the Jewish people so they would know all the Old Testament laws, they would know all of the, the festivals of the Old Testament, and so it says that Jesus enters the temple uh, as he approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives. So he already thinks that you, uh, you know that Passover is just days away. Passover is like the heightened celebration for the Jewish people, It Actually, re- they redid their calendar based on Passover. Passover became the, the first month when Passover happened. And it was, the pla- it was the time that God had brought his people out of Egypt and into the Promised Land. And he did so by having them, by setting a bunch of plagues down on Egypt. And the last plague was this plague of death. And the only way they could escape death is if they took a perfect lamb, slaughtered it or sacrificed it, and then put the blood on the doorpost. Sounds kind of creepy, but this is what was the mark to show that God would pass over them. And so all of the Hebrews, and actually maybe even some of the Egyptians did this who believed, because it says that when the people came out, a mixed multitude of people came with them. So not everyone was Jewish that came with. It could have been people who heard what they were, the Jewish people were supposed to do and also did it. And so this festival is one where they had to return to Jerusalem every year to celebrate that if they were a good Jew. So thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people are flooding into the city of Jerusalem and Jesus is also coming into the city. So you have to imagine crowds upon crowds of people Jesus is riding down this hill, this ridge called the Mount of Olives, and then he's coming through this little valley and then up to the city walls. And as he's doing that, there's a bunch of people that are waving palm branches like we did. They're throwing them down on the ground. They're setting their coats on the ground. And the disciples who were asked to go get this donkey, and then they set their coats on this animal, they would have made the connection after being with him for three years that this is something they do as Jewish people to start or anoint or choose a new king. And so the crowd, I think, cut a caught the connection to that they are hailing or asking for or cheering on a new king. And that Jesus is accepting this welcome. And they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save us, Hosanna to the Son of David. They're cheering that, but why? are they cheering that? Well, they're cheering that because there was this promise that one day God would send a new king who would be a descendant of King David who would rescue them from exile. So they're crying out to be rescued from this place of exile. Now, exile is what happens in God's story. It's actually one of the most significant themes in God's story because The Bible is a story about people who are created in God's image to live uniquely as his people and then to bless others through that. They're given a blessing and a responsibility. But they don't do it. Instead, they try to do things on their own, if you will, try to earn their own redemption, and they end up in exile. And... Exile isn't just this one thing that we were looking at for the last two months about God bringing them out of a place called Babylon. Exile is like this human condition. If you think about it, the first humans had their home in a garden of Eden, a garden of delight. They had everything they needed, it was a place of paradise. They just had one thing that they had a limit on, and they rebel against God, and they are exiled. From the garden. And it says in the story in Genesis 3 that God puts an angel with a flaming sword to the east of the garden to guard the entrance or to guard the way back to the garden. To keep people out or to make sure that people can return. So they were home, they were in exile. And then maybe there's a return. And I would just like to say, I always thought it was to protect them and keep them out. And the more I start to understand who God is, the more I read his story, the more I think, oh, no, no. It's to guard the way back. To make sure that they can come back. And so throughout Genesis, we're not going to go through the whole Bible, but throughout Genesis there is like exiled from the garden, and then Cain kills his brother Abel, those are the first human's descendants, and then Cain is exiled to the east. And then they start, uh, Cain's descendants start building cities and doing bad stuff, and they they go further and further east. Until the height of their rebellion in Genesis 11, they're building something. They're building this tower to make a name for themselves and to be like God. Remember the tower's name, anyone? Babel. Anyone know where it's located? Babylon. Further to the east and they're already in exile. Babylon became this image for any time we experience exile. And yet, Even from that place, God works with the humans he has. He takes a a man who's really old named Abram or Abraham and his wife Sarai or Sarah, and he calls them out of a place called Ur, which is basically in Babylon, to journey west to come back to a place that God calls the Promised Land. It is the New Eden. It's the new return home. And yet, Abraham lives there as a foreigner, homeless and wandering, but he's home. He's sort of in a promised land, in a place of delight. And so, the book of Genesis is actually a whole series of exile repetitions where they're home, they rebel, they're in exile, and they return. Over and over and over until all the people end up in Egypt, And then when God calls them out, that's why we celebrate Passover, or they celebrated Passover, there's this return home to this promised land. Home, exile, return. And yet the pattern continues to repeat until all of Israelite's descendants are in a Babylonian exile. So if you were here, we were talking about Ezra and Nehemiah, And how they came back to Jerusalem, but yet they're still in exile. And exile just doesn't happen to people in the Bible. I think this family of this kid Landon, I think they're in exile. Exile is this feeling of alienation or isolation where you feel completely alone. And you're longing for something more, something better. A real home where you feel seen and understood, safe, protected. That's redemption. That's a new heart. That's home. And exile, the people when they were in exile, the Bible continues to use this phrase don't lose heart. Don't lose heart when you're in that place because exile's the place when you learn, I need a new heart. I can't do this on my own. And so what we see through Jesus entering Jerusalem is that he is this person who can bring us that. He can bring us that because he's coming in peace, not in violence, and we can get a new heart when we're getting it through peace and not through violence. When Jesus gives these specific instructions about the donkey... It's one of the first times, maybe one of the only times, that he actually deliberately fulfills an Old Testament prophecy. This one from Zechariah 9, 9 through 12, that Jocelyn read earlier. Shout and cheer, daughter Zion. Raise the roof, daughter Jerusalem. Your king is coming. He's a good king who makes all things right. A humble king, riding on a donkey. A mere colt of a donkey. I've had it with war. No more chariots for Ephraim. No more war horses for Jerusalem. No more swords and spears, bows and arrows. He will offer peace to the nations. A peaceful rule worldwide from the four winds to the seven seas. Jesus is proclaiming himself to be this king who comes in peace to bring us peace with God and the whole world. And that's significant because they're shouting, Hosanna, son of David. David was the first king, and actually the only king in all of God's people's time, where there was a brief moment in time where that kingdom had peace all throughout the land. Almost sounds fairy tale like. This king was crowned, and there was peace in the land. There was a moment that the Bible says that there is peace in all the land. And David was the king that moved the capital for this nation to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's name means city of peace or set in peace or double peace. And he is the one who wants to actually build a temple for God. Temple being this place where, this sacred place where people could worship God and find peace. Forgiveness and redemption. Except, God says to David uh, in First Chronicles 28, if you want to check it out, no, you're a warrior. You have blood on your hands. Someone else, one of your children, will build this temple. The child is Solomon, whose name means peace, shalom. So I'm putting all these pieces out on the table, But the reason I'm putting all these pieces out on the table is because if you grew up in this Jewish nation, you would know these pieces. You might not know how to put them together, but you would know these pieces. So if we were to put these together, so it's Passover, this redemption celebration. It's Jerusalem. It happens in Jerusalem. They're crying out for David to be the one to save them. This this person who is the one who brought peace to the nation, the one king that every other king is referred to. And it's the place where people can find redemption. And they're shouting, save us, save us. And they want a king who conquers, a king who kills, a king who fights off the Romans because they think if they can just get the Roman Empire out of Jerusalem, that they will have peace. It's violence instead of peace. They think they can earn redemption. They just want that freedom to do whatever they want. And we do the same thing. It's thinking that walls will solve our immigration problems. And we have immigration problems. And maybe it'll help, but it's thinking that that's the last thing. It's Jerusalem thinking that city walls are what's needed to protect Jerusalem instead of God being the one who's needed to protect Jerusalem. Because Zechariah also said that, that Jerusalem would be a city without walls where there would be so many people streaming in, Zechariah 2. It's thinking that the biggest military is the way for peace. It's thinking that I need to demand my way and fight for my rights. I need, to, I need to go first through the food line. Sometimes it's not even letting someone merge when you're going on your commute. But true peace, true peace, never, never comes from violence. That's what Jesus shows us. That's why He's the one who can redeem us. This promised king does not come on a war horse, a white stallion, if you will. He comes on a donkey a humble animal for peace, not violence. Maybe God just is speaking to you right now about a place in your life where you really need to surrender to peace instead of fighting for what you want. What Jesus also offers, I think in this story, is relationship instead of religion that we can get a new heart when we are focused on relationship instead of religion. Remember, Jerusalem was supposed to be the city, Zechariah said, a city without walls because of the great number of people that will come, and there is a great number of people that are coming, and they are shouting for Jesus, they are welcoming Jesus, and yet, instead of actually finding repentance at the temple, seeking God at the temple, they're, they're crying out for this war cry, this war Rebellion, and, and see, Zechariah was around when Ezra and Nehemiah had come back. If you weren't here for those, there was this return from exile. And these people come back, and they, are start, they start rebuilding the temple. They're rebuilding the city. They think there's been home, there's been exile, now there's return. Everything's going to be okay. And they build the temple, and God's spirit doesn't come in it. He's not there. And they miss it. They think that religion will fix it. That as long as they're in Jerusalem, that redemption is about geography, not about relationship with God. And and so they're still waiting for this return from exile. And the same thing is happening in this story when Jesus is entering Jerusalem. Which, by the way, in all of Matthew's story, Jesus has never been to Jerusalem. That should make you go, huh? What? Jerusalem is this huge place. It's the center where God's presence is supposed to be. It's the place where people are supposed to find redemption and Jesus has never been there? No, this is his first and last time in Jerusalem. Now, why is that significant? I think it's significant because Jesus was trying to live out exile. Because he knows that you and I experience exile way more than we experience home. Seriously, no one's going to amen that? All right, maybe you all experience home, but I experience exile a whole lot more than I experience home. So Jesus, so Matthew tells stories about Jesus Where he's out in the wilderness, where he's out in Galilee, not Jerusalem, where he's hanging out with the sick and the hurting and the sinners, and he's always considered homeless during his public ministry. Jesus is with the people who are either shunned from the temple or scammed at the temple, Because when Jesus actually enters the temple where they're supposed to find forgiveness, he finds like money changers having these exorbitant exchange rates and he finds people that are trying to make sales on sacrificial animals at way too high of prices and he gets a little righteous anger. And he drives them out because this is the place where they're supposed to find forgiveness. This is the place where they're supposed to find redemption. This is the place where Jesus knows they can get a new heart except Jesus knows that he is the place not the temple. And he's showing that. Isaiah said that the temple was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. But instead he finds corruption and greed. I mean, Israel was supposed to be God's people with this blessing and responsibility. Instead, the priests and the leaders are angry at what Jesus is doing. The only way we can get this new heart is through relationship, not religion. And, but it is, in a sense, through action instead of anger. Jesus comes in and he takes action and yet doesn't get angry when he drives out these people. I think he's got a little righteous indignation, but it's different than the leaders' indignancy. The leaders are angry because. There's innocent children that are praising God's name for who he is and what he's done. They're praising Jesus. And they're mad at the wonderful things that Jesus is doing, which are healing the sick, uh, the 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 blind and the lame who are at the temple. The blind and the lame are always excluded from the temple. Exile. Maybe you've tried to enter a club or be in a group and people are like, no, not for you. And you know that feeling of like, "I I just want to. Somehow the people who couldn't see and the people who couldn't walk enter the temple. That took initiation, initiative. That took action. That took asking for help. but they're there and Jesus heals them. The people who are supposed to be blessed by God are somehow excluding the people who need God the most. Gosh, that, that can't preach, can it? That never happens at church. Is it any wonder that five days later Instead of cheering for them as their king, they're shouting for his execution. Jesus was coming in a way that they didn't expect or want. Because personal agendas, pride, comparison, judgment, you name it. Look at the characters in the story. The disciples in this instance, they're actually willing to listen and do what Jesus says, even though it sounds weird. Maybe, maybe you've had moments where, where you're like the disciples. I pray that you'd find that encouragement today. But then, you know, after the disciples, there's, there's the crowd. There's these people who are cheering Jesus on, except they don't really understand all he's come to do and the way he's come to do it. Because he knows we can't earn redemption on our own. Redemption is earned, but we we can't be the ones to do it. And the crowds miss that. But besides the disciples and the crowds, we've also got the religious leaders that have this blessing and responsibility like all the other people in Jerusalem, but they have personal ambitions, they have favorite pursuits, they have pride, they have judgment, comparison, and they reject Jesus. What it says to me is that sometimes we have personal agendas. I have personal agendas. Sometimes I have favorite pursuits, or maybe you have favorite pursuits that really keep you from seeing Jesus or even rejecting him. Sometimes we can be just so focused on something just a little off from what we really need that instead of getting a new heart, our hearts become hardened. And we miss what God really wants to do, not just to us, but in us and through us. There's also the little children, though. They are singing and praising Jesus loud and proud. They have an innocent trust. They're believing that what Jesus is saying and what he's doing is the best thing for their life. And so they are in. And yes, they're naive. And Jesus welcomes it. If you're like, gosh, I don't know anything about the Bible, I can't follow anything you're saying, Rob. You have simple faith? Jesus takes that. Absolutely. Absolutely. He can use it. But there's also, lastly, there's the blind and the lame in the story. The ones who can't see and can't move. They're the ones who actually find healing. They probably most abundantly and apparently experience who Jesus is. They receive that new heart, that new life. But they had to I think they had to ask for help. They had to take a step. They had to move. And maybe you're in a place where you're like, I have had, I'm having such a hard time seeing Jesus. Or I feel so distant from God, I don't know how I could get there. I'd call that blind and lame. Be encouraged. Jesus sees you. Jesus wants to give you healing and hope. You just need Take action towards them, just a little bit of action. Sometimes it's just in confession or in repentance. It's in a prayer. It's moving one step in your mind. It's moving one step in your heart. Might be asking for help. Might be going to somebody that you know in the church and saying, here's my thing. Here's what my block is. Here's my obstacle. I don't know how to get around it. Ask for help. See, Jesus wasn't coming to conquer Rome because he was after a much greater enemy than Rome. He was coming to destroy the sin and the death and ultimately Satan, who's the one who pushes us towards exile all the time. He is the one who can give us that new heart we see him? will you respond? We pray with me. Jesus, you continue to amaze and baffle me at the same time. You welcome people's praise. you enter a city. Luke tells us that you weep over that city because people have missed who you are. And yet you still, in the midst of that, challenge the proud to humble themselves. You challenge and welcome the weak and the sick to to healing and to hope. And you laugh and hug children, innocents, who get who you are. You can do all that at the same time. I pray that this week that we could receive and see you for who you are. God, that we could walk through the, the stories of Palm Sunday and the stories of this week through one of the Gospels, that we would take time to just read a few minutes every day to enter your story, to see and feel what it was like for you to go through this week, that maybe you could even show us, Holy Spirit, which one of these characters we most easily identify with so that we could receive that new heart, so that we could have you give us the redemption that you earned. Open our eyes, God. Move in us to be connected to you, God, to be home and to help others find that way home. God, forgive us when we exclude intentionally or unintentionally exclude someone from coming to you. God, may we be people that that are home with you and that are helping others to be home with you.